0: Welcome to Thoughts on Record, podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Each week, we explore topics of interest relevant to mental health clinicians and consumers. That said, if you're generally interested in psychology, the brain, dynamics of human behavior, and other aspects of the incredible journey that is the human experience, you've come to the right place. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. Hey everybody, hope you're doing well. Uh, Before we get to the podcast, I just wanted to briefly share what I think is an important perspective around the content discussed in the episode. In our discussion today, Dr. Jeff Padon and I share some thoughts on what we have been observing going on in the world based on our respective lenses as individuals, as well as through the lens of being practicing clinical psychologists who are trying to help clients in an ever increasingly complex and distressing environment. We just wanted to say up front that all opinions and beliefs expressed today are our own. It's also important to stress that neither Jeff or I are licensed investment advisors. This conversation is a general discussion where we simply want to foster critical thinking around what's going on in the world today, particularly around monetary policy and how it can potentially be relevant to the practice of psychology, and really in particular, understanding the challenges our clients are facing at a systems level. To be clear, no one listening to this podcast should be making investment decisions based on the content of this podcast. While we do certainly touch very directly on social media, monetary policy, Bitcoin, among other topics, as I hope will be evident from the conversation, we really tried to come at these issues from a place of open-ended curiosity and humility, and to try to retain the very nuance and balance that we both feel has been lost from so many important policy discussions. And hopefully we struck the right balance. For transparency, we think it's important to note that Jeff does own Bitcoin, and at the time of publication of this podcast in February 2022, I currently do not. While I don't think Jeff or I are going to be accused of influencing the stock markets anytime soon, nevertheless, I think to act with full integrity and to allow you, the listener, to critically consider this conversation, we both felt this disclosure was very necessary. We both sincerely hope that this episode prompts some critical thinking around some of the emergent challenges of our world. As is often the case in life, today's challenges are not likely to be served by yesterday's solutions, whether it's the pandemic, climate change, monetary policy, or any number of the big questions on our plate. We're going to need to leverage human creativity to see our way through these challenges. Now, truly without any further delay, on to the episode. Dr. Jeff Perron is a clinical psychologist who works with adults. His work focuses primarily on helping clients who are experiencing anxiety, low mood, loss, burnout, life transitions, or general challenges in executing on goals that are important to them. He takes a CBT approach to helping clients identify their values and works with them to align their life more closely to those values. Dr. Perron completed his undergraduate training in psychology at McMaster University and his PhD at the University of Ottawa, including a residency at the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, where he is now in private practice. Dr. Perron also has experience in business, economics, and human resources, holding an MBA from Wilfrid Laurier University. All right, Dr. Jeff Perron, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today?
1: I'm excellent. How are you doing?
0: Not too bad. Welcome back to your third appearance, I believe, on Thoughts on Record.
1: It is, yeah. Third time's a charm.
0: I think your previous two episodes are in the top 10 of all the episodes, which is kind of like being rich with Monopoly money, but... (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk more
1: about that on this episode.
0: Yeah, but nevertheless, for what it's worth, uh, the chats that we've had, I think, have been well-received, and I'm really delighted to have you back. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, thank you uh, and happy to do it. And uh, again, I, I, I'm not uh, sure what the means for feedback is, but we're going to get into some uh, topics here that maybe are kind of like on the the outskirts or outside the bubble of kind of the, the traditional clinical speak. So um, it's all with a tone of um, wanting to have a discussion and, and get feedback. So if folks do have that feedback, um, I'd love love to hear it.
0: Perfect. And that's probably a good time to mention that we do have an email now, oicbtpodcast at gmail.com. So if anyone has any ire raised by our spicy takes on any of these uh, issues, feel free to uh, send some feedback along. But uh, no, in all honesty, we are going to try something a little different today and have just a very open-ended discussion around the impact of, I guess what I'd call systems-level challenges with, with respect to conceptualizing our clients and the challenges they may be facing Jeff, you had circulated what I thought was a really well and uh, written document, really well thought out to the practice that is essentially a primer on monetary policy, cryptocurrency, really geared to psychologists and with a focus on how the current fiat currency system has the potential to really exacerbate and create these inequities and can really disadvantage large swaths of people, which of course are going to include our clients. In discussing this, we both thought this would make for a really good topic for discussion and conversation. However, before we get there, Jeff, if it's okay, I just wanted to put out some additional context uh, observations and a couple of disclaimers. Is it okay if I indulge myself for a few moments in that? Please do. Perfect. Okay. So, Before we even get to the framework, which I want to take some time to lay out, a really important disclaimer on this entire conversation. Neither Jeff or myself are registered investment advisors or even close to that. Jeff, you do have an MBA, but we don't have any formal qualifications as a As it relates to finances. So, nothing that we're saying today should be interpreted as financial or investment advice in any way. There are many good professionals out there who you can consult if you need that type of advice. We are not those people. (laughs) We are just having an interesting, what we hope, an interesting discussion about some uh, big picture issues that have been on our minds. And yeah, we really just want to discuss some big picture systems, levels, forces that we think could have implications for clients. And we want to have a chat about how we as psychologists could relate to this kind of information. And Jeff, I'll have a question for you in a moment again, when I get through this big long preamble, but around what kind of obligation you think that we have as psychologists to be up on these systems level forces, if it's something almost an area of competency, perhaps anyway, we'll we'll get there in a sec. So, okay. So just a couple of observations, just to set up the framework for this discussion. The first is that, with the caveat that I think there is a built in bias for every generation to believe that things are perhaps worse now than they were in the proverbial good old days. You know, watching some trends really carefully, I truly feel that we're on the precipice of some massive paradigm shifts with respect to the way that society is organized, the way it functions. These changes could happen in five years, they could happen in 50. I have no idea, but I I think they're on the way. Uh, I've been reading a book by Ray Dalio called Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Why Nations Succeed and Fail. And he's basically analyzed a number of nations over time that have ascended to power and then fell from power. And a lot of the metrics of a nation in decline are lighting up for Western nations at the moment, in particular the United States. High levels of indebtedness, printing currency to inflate away debt, large gaps in wealth, uh, values and political clout between different groups of individuals in society. That should sound pretty familiar to anyone who's sort of watching the news these days. And then just one other point here, and then we'll, we'll get to the discussion. So I, I think, you know, as psychologists, I think we're all aware that we project a lot onto our parents only to have this realization one day that they are simply flawed human beings j- just like us. And now I think a lot of us also carry this projection out into society. And we imagine there's all these sort of societal moms and dads that are out there that are going to be able to take care of anything. Uh, of course, I'm speaking mainly about like government institutions, things like that. And I don't know, speaking only for myself, but at midlife, I feel like I've been working to make that unconscious projection very explicit and start to challenge it. Especially with events like the housing bubble in 2008 and all the lunacy that that flowed from that. Uh, Seeing Trump come to power, the the reactions to that on both sides, as well as what I've been observing around COVID from so many dimensions, again, on both sides uh, of that issue. Again, COVID's become a political issue. So, Jeff, again, my apologies for the long preamble, but I just wanted to get a frame out there for this conversation. I I think if you put all of what I've described together, there's a lot of grounds for, for, for a lot of angst. And I think this is, we've seen this in our clinical work. With people, There's some sense that something maybe fundamentally something is going wrong. You know, the the way the world is organized might be shifting fundamentally under our feet. There's a really serious lack of perceived trust, perhaps rightly so in many institutions that we had regarded as being immutable and pillars of wisdom. But of course, as we teach clients in the midst of a crisis in life, you know, there's always the opportunity for growth, change and rejuvenation. I think your paper on cryptocurrency for psychologists is exactly the kind of discussions that could be incredibly interesting and and maybe even productive in terms of wrapping our heads around navigating these issues, understanding them and understanding the implications for our clients. So Jeff, any thoughts on anything that I had said there or anything you wanted to add in terms of framing up the conversation before we jump in with a bit more of a discussion?
1: What comes to mind is trying to find that balance between being sufficiently motivated in making change, changing what's not working while not catastrophizing. And that's that's really the challenge here. And I'm trying to come at all of this and this is hopefully a thread that shines through in this conversation from a place of opportunity and optimism, but at the same time, it would be naive to think that the current paradigm that we live in, let's just call it North America or the Western world, is going to continue to be the dominant power, if we can call it that, indefinitely. And I think that is a global transition is part of what we are, are up against. And I, I don't mean that necessarily a, a transition in terms of one nation or a set of nation against others, although there are those dimensions. There's also transition between the, the physical world to an increasingly digital world. So a lot of opportunity there, but I think we have to recognize when we are um, knocking our heads effectively against a wall as as a society or as individuals. And again, I don't want that to come at some hoity-toity moralistic perspective from some guy, i.e. myself, who has it all figured out, because obviously I don't. What I'm trying to do is think through these issues and think through what does this mean for me, my family? What does this mean for my clients in a role where I'm tasked with helping people um, achieve wellness and helping them live their values?
0: That's a great take, Jeff. And I really like all the nuance that you packed in there. And that's something that I certainly struggle with where I don't think we're ever going to have the luxury of blowing up or walking away from, you know, pillars of our society. They have gotten us quite a bit down the road in some respects. And, and certainly some people have been left behind in that endeavor, but on some level it might be the best that we've got. And it might be worth tweaking these things rather than just throwing them away. So I, I think extreme positions on either side have been really corrosive and led to a lot of swerving all over the road and activating these really tribalistic tendencies in either side. So I, I Since we're on the same here, page here, Jeff, of trying to find some kind of middle ground we can kind of live with, live in the dialectic like we would talk about with a client, right? When I look at geopolitical issues, monetary issues, like I think of all the clinical skills we have to bring to bear to understand these things and to find tenable positions that are sustainable over time. So, yeah, learning to hang out in the middle of these dialectics, I think, is a, is a skill that is uh, sorely in demand at the moment.
1: Yeah, and just to situate the conversation that we're about to have a little bit further, if you've noted this idea of folks feel like there's something different of late, and this is COVID aside, but just as far as you know, opportunity, maybe inflation, the way money's working, if you look at millennials trying to buy a house, etc., politics, look at the rise of Donald Trump, So we have this sense that something's different, something's changed. And I think that this conversation will center obviously around money, the, the meaning of money, opportunities as far as new forms of currency. The two gasolines that I see that are fueling the fire of division and possibly unproductive change are problems with monetary policy and currency and social media. So again, I, I know that that those at this point have almost become just tropes. Just Well, it's division fueled by social media. But I, I think that those are two important contextual factors that we're going to hit on in this conversation, mostly on the financial piece of it. But we'd be, again, naive to disregard those two fuels on the fire of change and division in our society.
0: I totally agree, especially around the social media piece in particular. And I think we'll we'll have an unfolding discussion around the, I think, unbeknownst impact that monetary policy is having on this division as well. But it's very real once we get into it. Jeff, just as a first question for maybe us to consider together, uh, rather, I'm not asking you specifically, and, and again, I'm not holding you to have the ultimate answer on this. It's really just sort of a discussion point. You know, what obligation, if any, do we as psychologists have to understand and integrate systems levels, system level influences on determinants of well-being in our clients? For example, you know, a young person who's weighing the decision to go to university versus pursue a trade or neither, or, you know, helping a young person worried that they'll never be able to afford a home and managing distress around that. You know, clearly, we're never going to give direct advice to that client. We're going to help them work out the issue for themselves. But, even to complete something like a thought record, a very basic elementary CBT tool to discuss pros and cons or evidence for and against assumptions the client may be having, I think requires some competent knowledge of the framework in which the person's making that decision, some of the realities that they are navigating. And maybe just to flip this on its head, and maybe this sort of aligns with cultural competency, I'm not sure, but if I was airlifted into Singapore, let's say dropped off and asked to help a client address these exact same problems, I would be in no way helpful, I don't think, to this person because I don't think I would have the knowledge framework as to how these issues play out in that society to be able to help them evaluate appraisals they may be holding. So what do you think about that, Jeff? What is our obligation as psychologists to be aware of these systems level challenges?
1: I think that we're not sure and I think we're trying to navigate that very question and hopefully this conversation is part of that because we've, if we look at what I may call it the, the golden age of clinical psychology or of CBT and, and third wave CBT in the past, let's just say 40 or 50 years, that was developed in a relatively stable, though, um, what's the word I'm looking for in terms of, uh, you know, privileged in a lot of ways, positive economic growth, growth in opportunities, growth in freedom, autonomy in a lot of parts of society, not all. And so that has helped inform the clinician's role and perspective in society. And I think that is the part that is now changing. And if we look at inflation, which we'll talk more about, we had strong economic growth on average throughout the past 40, 50 years, obviously hiccups during that period. And now we're seeing a a little bit of a new order as far as the economy goes. Yes, we've had inflation in the past and transient inflation and high levels of inflation. What we're seeing now is this rapid onset of inflation and this printing of excessive amounts of money and excessive amounts of debt is part of this new world order that is changing the the rules I think of the society that we live in and thereby the opportunities that exist for our clients. So if we are operating with a 1960s or 70s, fortunately I wasn't around then. So take this with a grain of salt, mentality of hey, let let's let's try to live the North American dream and have you, you know, chase your dream and your goals and you know, whatever, if you can dream it, you can do it. I would love to have that perspective with each of my clients, but again, I think this is the the very question that we're we're navigating: is that a reasonable perspective to have as we see increased division and increased wealth inequity? So, I, I that's the angle that I come at it with. I know that it's kind of it may sound doom and gloomy, but I think that if we can navigate from perspective of understanding that something is changing, something is changing economically. There is a risk that something will fundamentally change in terms of the opportunities that our clients, particularly young people have, or those folks as well entering retirement. uh, If things change as far as inflation, pensions, um, then we can, I think, be more nimble in addressing whatever changes may be coming.
0: I just want to point out something really quick, right? From that doom and gloom perspective, right? That might be a distinctly, let's say, North American or Western experience, because of course, as far as debt goes, somebody's debt is another person's asset. So if North Americans are up to their eyeballs in debt, you can bet that somebody else has leveraged that as an asset. So, you know, the, the, the sense that the sky is falling or that things are changing, like, they're, they're, you know, there's other parts of the world that are like, uh, yeah, this has been happening for a while, and thank God for that. And again, I think it's just worth pointing out that the veil might be lifting from North Americans' eyes in terms of the immutability of, or the apparent immutability of things remaining this way forever and ever and ever. And as Ray Dalio points out in his book, these cycles are very long, right? They can be, you know, 80 to 100 years. And of course, there's no one person that is typically around to see the whole cycle from start to finish. So when these changes happen, they're shocking and upsetting you know, to the person because they've never seen them before, but they are nothing new in terms of the course of history. And and I think that's something that is worth trying to wrap our minds around is that there's been an exceptionalism that we probably have wrapped ourselves in that we, I believe are on the precipice of having taken away from us. Uh, if if I can speak very generally.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm also thinking about younger clients who might be listening to this, not my clients per se, but younger folks who may be consum- mental health consumers who are listening to these uh, two psychologists talk about these things. And I think that they may have many examples to pick from that suggest that you know their level of opportunity is not the same as it may have been for previous generations. And I sure hope that this conversation is not Another data point of like, yeah, look at these these two guys seem to think that you know younger generations are screwed and everything's changing. Cause that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is things are changing. And I think you're saying the same. That things are changing. We'd be naive to think that things were not changing, even COVID aside, the the world order is going to shift and flow. The COVID has exacerbated the rate of change. And so. I think it's incumbent on us to say, okay, change is happening. It may be good. It may be bad, but let's try to understand the change and try to understand the opportunities. And I think just what I'm trying to convey is a healthy level of concern in a sufficient enough dose to motivate action and learning and and understanding, but not so strong a dose that it's paralyzing
0: super important point, right? Exactly. We're not trying to advocate a sky is falling. Uh, I I think it's possible to remain sort of neutral and agnostic about the change, right? It's sort of, yeah, it's just change is going to be coming. We can remain sort of open-ended about it and just be, if I can say factual about it, right? What are the opportunities that are going to present themselves as a function of this change happening? And it appears that it is happening. So, as we point out in the lives of individual clients i say this all the time uncertainty is the well from which everything flows in your life not only the bad stuff right there's plenty of amazing things like you know meeting a partner or a chance meeting on a subway that changes your life or finding an amazing book or a podcast or a best friend or whatever everything in our life comes to us from the well of uncertainty this is no different i think it's about just acknowledging the cognitive dissonance around wanting things to be the same and then the distress that will come with noticing that they're different. I think that's where the hang up is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me personally, as a clinician, I don't want to be the clinician that's caught in 2003. You know, I want to be a clinician, clinicians operating in 2022 with a mind to 2025 and 2028. Um, so that's again, the the personal, uh, day-to-day piece of it for me.
0: No, I agree. And I think strategic Tactical problem solving is a big part of CBT. Again, again, without directly saying to clients, you should do this. But I think helping clients to develop frameworks for problem solving things that come up in their lives is really, really important. And if you are not, in my opinion, up to date with respect to your presuppositions or assumptions about the way that things work, uh, your ability to help the client think through these things may not be as optimal as it could be. That might be my own unrelenting standards uh, shining through not surprised if, if that's the case, but that's certainly the way that I feel about it. I, I don't know, Jeff, just to put it really plainly, I do feel like we have some sort of obligation to have situational awareness and to have some basic understanding of some of the forces at play in the world that our clients are navigating. Jeff, there's just one little thread I want to loop back on because we, we kind of did a drive by on it, but I really want to make sure that I ask you this question because it, it keeps popping into my mind. We talked about social media and um I have noticed the really corrosive effect that even just going on Twitter once a day has had on my mental well-being, especially since Omicron has come to prominence and causing all the problems that it is. And I mean, I gotta be honest, I've literally had moments where I've started to doubt my sanity in terms of what where reality lies, because there's very compelling information that's put out sort of 360 around any particular event. And it kind of, I've had to I honestly, I've had to take a step away from it and I've noticed some of the viewpoints of people who I've have followed closely really become polarized over time. And I think edge into almost conspiracy, but I've previously sort of held some sort of faith in these folks and been like, what is going on here? Like it, it's really sort of disorienting and debasing, and 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 I'm gonna, I'm not going to lie, like anxiety provoking. It's like what, where does the truth lie? How am I going to get to the bottom of what's going on and try to be a critical thinker around this? Jeff, I'd be really curious to know because I know you have a little bit of a social media presence, and and I, I see you commenting, or I have seen you at some points commenting, following up on different threads with I think some really interesting viewpoints. How do you think through your social media engagement? How do you govern yourself? How do you think through it as a tool and like anything, a hammer can be used for evil, a hammer can be used for good. so how do you think through your use of this tool?
1: Well, it's timely because one of my reflections for the new year was just on that part of it, right and thinking about what you know what are my professional goals the I've realized that the the use of social media as, you know, entertainment or as news, at least for me, is not helpful. In fact, deleterious. It it generally, you know, it's a high correlation between that. I think someone has described it as the death scroll where you're just scrolling indefinitely and a, a pretty seemingly well correlated decline in mood and increase in a and you know baseline anxiety. So I think my experience mirrors what you're describing. And so I've said, okay, wh- wh- what is this good for? How does it fit into my life? And to me, it, it is a venue for hearing different opinions, and it is a, a networking tool for engaging with different um, professionals. So my goal is to. Have a policy for using social media as opposed to social media using me, and so I've defined. Hey, let's identify times when you are explicitly using social media, and so that's that may be you know an hour or two max per week. That's just what works for me, and very explicitly use it at those times only. Not use it as oh, I've got a, a free you know twenty minutes here. Let's check out what's happening on. LinkedIn or Twitter, because that uh, form of use I find does nothing positive for me.
0: No, I totally agree. And I've often wondered, you know, I see people on Twitter who are professional folks, presumably they have very busy professional lives. And I just see a stream of tweets all day, replies, follow ups. I'm just like, how is any work getting done in the context of this engagement with? with Twitter or other forms of social media. I don't understand how this is being deployed constructively for the vast majority of people who I see using it.
1: I've had the exact same thought. And on the polarization part, I mean, we know there there seems to be good data on the fact that social media polarizes folks. Humans are prone to group polarization, social media. You have the ability to pick who you follow. And so you can effectively live in a different world than someone else, because if you're living on social media, you're seeing totally different content than the person next to you by design. And I think that's where that that gasoline effect is happening. Yeah, we're already prone to tribalism and, and groupthink. And now you just exponentially increase the extent to which the reality you're seeing is an echo chamber. And again, I, I'm not going to pretend that I, I can see the direct links to what's happening, say, in politics, but there, the the influence of social media polarization is clearly having some kind of effect on what we're seeing politically, both in the U.S. and here at home.
0: Yeah, it's really disheartening. I mean, I have the sense there's a lot of good people who almost kind of morph into these, like we're seeing a personas on display on Twitter, as opposed to the actual sort of fiber of that person's being. And that's really disappointing, because you know, there's probably very nuanced, good people underneath some of these more uh, rage filled takes or, or polarized takes. Anyway, we, we could go on and on. And I think at the end of the day, I'm a big fan of the way that Ethan Cross, who I had on the podcast, talks about social media. It's simply just another environment to navigate. And just like if you lived in a desert environment, you would have to learn skills for living in a, with the rigors of what a desert environment would entail. We live in a social media environment. There's some obligation, I think, to figure out how to engage with it or how to live with it at the, at the very least. That's That's what I think.
1: Yeah, and someone else, folks, wanna, might want to look into is, is Jonathan Haidt, because he is a um, social psychologist. But at, at any rate, what he has advocated for, and he, he started um, an organization or is one of the founders of an organization called the Heterodoxy Academy. And my understanding is what they are driving at is the notion that and the opportunity around multiple voices and starting from a point of like, we don't know the answer we don't know the answer. And this isn't a left or a right issue. And no issue should be a left or a right issue. Let's hear multiple ideas as a group, make decisions based on discussion, healthy, respectful debate. And so I think that's really the, the opportunity and the antidote to some of the, the pessimism that we might be expressing is like, I think that's really the way forward is is this idea of heterodoxy centrism with a goal of deciding what's the best most uh, you know let's say productive course of action on any given issue whether that's you know personally or um, societally instead of aligning with whatever tribe I align with on that given day
0: Yeah, I just want to say one more point about this, and I'm stealing this from a recent uh, Peter Atia The Drive podcast episode that I listened to, where they talked about the difference between advocacy and science. And so much of that is being confused on Twitter right now, where there's advocacy positions being taken. There's some people trying to take scientific positions. And those are not the same thing. And they're very easy to confuse, especially if you don't have any formal scientific training or you're not able to critically think through the data because that's not in your wheelhouse. How many people are have the time, inclination to sit around and learn about COVID so that they can read you know, articles on COVID critically? Most people just don't, including myself. So We are very vulnerable to being ensnared by these strong advocacy positions that are taken as opposed to science, which is in a way a lot less sexy because it's uncertainty, it's nuanced, it's to be determined, it's an open-ended question, it's hypotheses to be explored over time. So I just want to alert people to that dynamic. And I think it's really, really important when you're looking through something is like, am I looking at advocacy or am I looking at science? All right. So with that, Jeff, let's transition over to the crux of our discussion today. I think there's going to be lots of interesting things to talk about. I think actually it would be helpful for the audience to have a little bit of context with respect to you and your background. And I'm going to ask you why you wrote this paper in a moment, but would you mind just maybe orienting the listener a little bit to your professional background as far as economics goes and, you know, maybe how that dovetails with your practice as a psychologist and again, we'll get to why you wrote this paper, but I'd love to give the audience just a little bit more of a sense of where you're coming from and why. So
1: yeah, it, it just tracing the, the chronology back, I started with my undergrad uh, in psychology, obviously at McMaster University, went on to do my, my MBA at Laurier, worked in uh, healthcare administration and management for a few years before coming back to do my my PhD in clinical site. So I had some of the the formal training in business economics, along with my clinical psychology training, and then more on a personal level, became interested in in real estate. Understanding real estate, why is real estate uh, something that one may want to put their um, investment funds into? Should they be so fortunate to have um, such an opportunity, and? the, I hope I'm not uh, jumping too far ahead here, but the crowd, a lot of the them who I follow as far as learning and better understanding what makes real estate an, an appealing investment. I was hearing more and more talk about Bitcoin. And I was one of the folks initially, I mean, for a few years or some Bitcoin, you know, this is a joke and, and, you know, secretly hoping to just see it collapse for the <laughs> you know, fraud and bubble Exactly, that I knew it was. But then you, you see folks who you respect talking about Bitcoin and you have to take note. And so started uh, learning more about it. I was gifted um, a book called The Bitcoin Standard, which really does a good job of explaining not only the basics around Bitcoin but monetary policy so that that was a really important starting point as far as m- jumping from the formal economic training to kind of m- m- my own personal um, investment research and you know just personal interests to um, Bitcoin
0: so Jeff, why did you decide to take the extra step of formalizing your thoughts into one document and distributing that to your psychology colleagues? What was your thinking around that? I mean, I, I certainly have really appreciated receiving the document. This is also an area that I have held very similar views to you around where I'm like, nah, this is all a bubble. This is hype. This is going away. But the more that I've looked into it, you see the underlying, not only philosophy that's baked into it, but also the technological implications are really, really profound and really sort of well thought out uh, as antidotes to some of the structural problems that you and I are going to talk about a little bit later. In any case, Jeff, what prompted you to write this paper and then to uh, distribute to your colleagues? What did you think was the value proposition there?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I don't want to say it was uh, you know part of just a hobby around writing, but I, I've always uh, toyed with the idea of writing and it's one of been one of these things like, oh, well, I should write more. Um, and then just being more intentional with, you know, where I was spending free time and said, okay, here's an opportunity to essentially practice writing it. I'm going to inform myself and test some of my assumptions as far as my own learning on economics in writing this. And that the what's in it for me part is, well, this is also going to be a networking tool that could be useful to, to share with, with colleagues who are interested in it. Um, so put it together over the course of a, a few weeks. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the motivation is, again, I don't want to say that I was compelled in some meta- metaphysical, I just had to write this, but the, the I'm, I'm hesitating to use the term frustration, but I'll use it. The frustration that I have with seeing the amount of spending that's going out the door on a lot of seemingly very important and necessary things um, has been related to my thinking on division in society and and polarization. And to put it together from a monetary framework slash Bitcoin uh, perspective seemed to be a a nice way of of bringing it all together. And I guess that's something that I'm almost forgetting is I I wanted to, I I mentioned um, folks like Jonathan Haidt and wanting to you know, emulate to some of their work in, in a way, not not to you know, write a, a book like like he is writing, for example, but to say, okay, what? How can I put my views together as eloquently as as someone like him? And I found that well, uh, I guess I better start practicing my writing. If here's someone, you know, whose work you admire um, and the means by which you consume it is through writing, you better, you know, practice your writing. So it's kind of um, the perfect storm in the sense of like, had, had some time to um, work on quote unquote hobby, melds with professional interests, uh, melds with kind of the internal fire i have to better understand some of my opinions as and frustrations as they relate to what i'm seeing in the news and that uh, seemed to be like a, a reasonable use of time as far as networking goes so put it together
0: in this paper excellent well again i think it's a really great read and uh jeff have you distributed this on twitter or, or linkedin on linkedin yeah perfect and uh, I'll ask you. I'll put in the show notes where people can access this if they would uh, like to have a look at the document that we're talking about. Jeff, maybe we can start off with, and I'm, I'm sort of going to walk through maybe the framework of the document here, just to be explicit about it. Let's start with a very elemental concept: what is money?
1: Yeah. So that that's the the starting point, right? Is okay. We'll understand what is special about what we call money? Why do we have money? Why do we use these quote unquote dollars to exchange? For goods and services and labor instead of gasoline or chickens or wood. because that was one of the early forms of exchange was that that barter through okay, I'm a chicken farmer. Um, I will exchange some chickens for that firewood. And the problem with that is that you can't really transport your chickens that far. The chickens will spoil easily. They're essentially not a good form of money. And so eventually, us wise humans uh, invented a a better medium of exchange, which was money. This thing that could be used in place of the chickens or the firewood. And so we can get into the various types of money and how we ended up going from more of the ancient forms of money to the type of money that we have today? Is that something we should touch on now?
0: One thing I just wanted to bring up first would be you have this term sound money in the document. And I think those terms are really important in terms of understanding what comes next in the conversation. So, Jeff, what are the characteristics of quote unquote sound money?
1: Yeah. So, we talk about chickens not traveling well. So, so one of the key forms of sound money or good money is that it has to be portable easy to transport so some of the earliest forms of money included things like beads or seashells because they could be put onto a canoe and transported over some distance to a neighboring region for example the other characteristic that sound money has is it's got to be durable right you know your eggs are not going to be good candidates for being placed on a boat and and traveling for six days. So tell coins, seashells, beads, these are things that are portable. The other part of it is stability. So it's got to keep its value over time. And part of that is also scarcity. So if something is stable and scarce, then it's going to help maintain its value. So some of the early seashells that were used were rare seashells that were difficult to find. If a form of money can be easily created or manipulated or have its supply changed readily like you can think of i've got 300 seashells and they ha- i'm transporting those to the next region over to pay for something that we've acquired from that that tribe if they can relatively easily generate their own 300 1000 5000 seashells well then your your 300 seashells aren't going to hold a lot of value because they wouldn't be scarce and their value wouldn't be stable.
0: And I think it's worth pointing out how much human imposition there is in terms of the symbolism of these things, right? Like a seashell is relatively speaking, I'm going to say devoid of a lot of value other than perhaps some other, some rudimentary uses for it. But through the power of the human mind, we were able to project on value to subjective value onto objective objects in order for them to become a currency of some kind.
1: Yeah, and in tracing the history back, it almost seems as if we started with these kind of representative forms of money and then advanced to what we would call commodity monies where the the money itself like a gold coin is a commodity that in and of itself has value. Yes, there's that assigned value and perception of value that is shared across the parties that are exchanging with that gold coin, but that gold coin itself could be melted down and used for different things. So unlike a seashell, which presumably has very limited use, a gold coin, this commodity money has an intrinsic value in and of itself. So we went from the early forms of money to this more advanced form of money, commodity money. And now maybe here's a reasonable point to describe how we've moved off of these monies with intrinsic value to other, quote unquote, lesser forms of money. So we go from your gold coin, which regardless of what the government says or does, my gold coin can be melted down and it has value in and of itself. Regardless of what happens in the economy, I can still hold that gold coin and and melt it down. We then move to representative money, again, for some of the very valid reasons that we've described. Representative money, like having a piece of paper or a contract that says, if I give you this $1, for example, I can exchange it for gold. So while the $1 piece of paper doesn't necessarily have intrinsic value in and of itself, it is a contract for that thing which does have intrinsic value, i.e., the gold. And that was the case with U.S. dollars for many years up until 1971. We could exchange this representative money for actual gold. It was represented by an underlying commodity with intrinsic value. I won't get too much into the history here, but in 1971, the U.S. was taken off the gold standard and This has been associated with most countries now moving off the gold standard. So the money is not tied to gold.
0: And just as a historical footnote, typically how this usually happens is that the government starts making more and more promises than they have gold available. So they just keep issuing more and more dollars, which are, again, that contract for gold than there is gold and at some point, the U.S. realized like, wow, we have way more promises out for gold than we have ability to pay out. There's go- if there's a run on the bank, we're going to go bankrupt or we're going to have to print all this money. And then, well, we're going to talk about that. OK, so, Jeff, what's the next part? What, what comes next?
1: Yeah, and I want to make sure that we're not talking like, oh, in the good old days when we had this money backed by gold. no, I mean, governments have always, because they're run by human beings, had liabilities, vulnerabilities, biases, the the Romans were clipping their coins. So they had these coins of a certain size and periodically the government to pay its debts and to pay itself started chipping off parts of these coins, right? So it's the same coin. It's, It's still worth $1 as an example. But it's it's smaller, and it now contains less gold, which is really analogous, and we'll get into this, to what's happening um, with our current currency. So we go from the, these commodity currencies, which have even in and of themselves been manipulated, to, okay, guys, we will now give you a piece of paper that represents the commodity, to, oh, by the way, now we need to come off of that representation. and strictly make the money based on the piece of paper itself. So you see this move from an underlying intrinsic value to the value being solely based on what the government is saying or assigning to the money, which is effectively what happened in 1971. And monies of that type that are, whose value is only based on the government's word and promise are called fiat currencies. And this is what virtually all nations in the world have today. The money is good insofar as the government says it's good.
0: So Jeff, I can already see problems brewing here where we keep developing more and more flexible systems to accommodate human greed, essentially, right? Just making more and more promises and having more and more flexible ways to to make those promises. Now, of course, I want to make an important point. I, I think people capitalism, money gets a bad rap. You know, I I use the word greed myself. Really what matters is what is done with that money, right? So you can do constructive things with money. You can provide healthcare with money. Like it really matters what you do with it as opposed to money or capitalism itself. So I just want to make sure that I get that voice in there because I I don't want to sound too doom and gloom. I just want to be clear about that point. So, but what I do see, and maybe you can tell me if this is a fair point, I, I do see human greed as sort of accelerating the, the flexibility of these tools over time. Is that a reasonable way of thinking about it? Or am I being too much of a debit downer and viewing it that way?
1: No, I think that's exactly what has happened. And we're not advocating or I'm not advocating going back to gold as our form of money. And we only exchange in gold coins. So there's, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with paper money, theoretically. The problem is that governments have always Given into the temptation to print more money, thus diluting the value of the money, aka inflation, and that tends to happen when they get into problems, right? And it's disguised as well. We have this societal problem, and clearly, we we know that printing money is bad. Although I think they've kind of just given up in even admitting that, but. Um, We know that printing money is bad, but this is such a a grave problem that we need to print money, as was done uh, during World War II. Point being, governments have always printed their way out of problems. That's the issue.
0: Okay, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. I mean, I have some awareness of the answer, but let's just kind of flesh this out. What is the problem with printing your way out of debt or printing your way out of problems? What are the unintended consequences that are going to bring themselves to bear specifically around the challenges with respect to equality, conflict? injustice, things like that. How do you see that playing out?
1: So when the money supply is inflated, and that's why we call it inflation, the value of your money decreases. That's just a fact. There's more money in the system. And if you're holding your money in cash, then its value decreases. Prices go up 5% a year. That $100 that you had in cash is now worth approximately $95 in terms of your purchasing power. So that that is intrinsically bad in and of itself because it's an erosion of the savings. But it's more insidious on a societal and psychological level because the money represents the exchange of time and labor. So I've worked for that money, presumably. And so what happens when the contract that I have with my employer or my society to say you are going to contribute X and you're going to be remunerated in these dollars. What happens when that is violated by the erosion of my savings? You go down a path of like, okay, well, why would I even work? How can I trust the system? How why should I save any money? And then you get into the the spiral of inflation because as inflation ramps up you become incentivized to spend now as opposed to wait so if you're going to tell me that my money is going to be worth 5 or 10 or 20 percent less next year i'm not going to wait to buy that car i'm not going to wait to buy that house and so that inflation fueled spending benefits the people who hold assets the assets that are not money, because the money is getting weaker and these assets are denominated in dollars, in our case, in North America, the like house it's denominated in dollars. So if you're telling me that the money is getting inflated or weakened, it makes sense for me to own a hard asset, the price in numbers is going to go up. The value arguably hasn't changed but I can protect myself by holding these assets. So when inflation ramps up, the people who hold assets benefit, and these are generally already the people who are advantaged in society, the people who don't or can't purchase these assets are left behind, and the gap between the two of them increases. And we need no clearer example than what has happened in the past couple of years with real estate prices across North America. They're up 20 plus percent, way more in some regions. The people who own real estate have been given arguably an unfair advantage. We can say, well, they were intelligent enough to make the decision to buy real estate. Sure. But it has created these arbitrary haves and have nots where people who've owned a house, let's say the average house is worth $500,000. dollars I've just gotten this one hundred thousand dollars plus bonus owing to not really any hard work on their part, simply owing to the decision that they made to buy the house. That decision was facilitated by whatever privilege and yes, hard work that they had. But now we have these these folks who are who don't own real estate who are hundred thousand dollars more behind. and it's that much more difficult for them to even, begin to acquire an asset like a house in part because of the way our our system works around say mortgages where you know the privilege and those with money can attain a loan and then leverage it in part because of that but also in part because of the fact that wages are not keeping up so even you know most of the quote-unquote privileged folks who own real estate their day job wages generally have not kept up with inflation. Have have, if you're listening to this, has your have your wages been increasing at 5, 10, 15% over the past two years? Probably not. If you've your net worth has gone up, it's probably been owing to the assets. So folks who don't own assets, who whose income only comes from work are that much further behind because their income hasn't gone up five, 10, 15%. But their groceries have arguably more than 15%, their gas cost has, and as has the cost of virtually everything else that one would want to buy.
0: So Jeff, just two real quick points. For those who might be a bit confused about inflation, and it can be a bit of a nuanced topic, the best definition that I've heard is too much money chasing too little goods. And if you think about that, that really sort of simplifies it, and then you can sort of extrapolate from there. The other thing I would say, Jeff, this reminds me so much at the individual level of an episode of depression when we talk about that trap track model where one little micro step in the wrong direction leads to a bigger step in the wrong direction leads to a mega step in the wrong direction which leads to so these You can see for folks who don't hold those assets that the way that the trend is going now is potentially that these things are going to compound and compound and compound in a way that really is just going to drive people apart, right? The proverbial haves and have nots are the gulf between them will just keep continuing to get bigger and bigger, much like when someone's struggling with depression, their mental health starts to deviate more and more and more and accelerates relative to someone who's not experiencing those same set of symptoms and psychosocial consequences.
1: Yeah. And the government is going to come in and take more and more steps to try to remedy the situation. So we've got a problem that is caused by the manipulation of currency. Again, that's not a political statement. That's a fact, right? The inflation is caused by, in large part, the manipulation of various forms of the currency. We then have all these knock-on effects one of which is increases in asset prices, which helps to drive inequity, which then drives all kinds of poor psychosocial outcomes. And the government comes in and says, this isn't fair. We got to protect the little guy. And what do they do? They probably print more money. And we've seen that with some of the lockdowns. We have a problem Again, not anti-lockdown by any means. But we have a problem here and we got to shut certain sectors of society down and we're going to, and I know that that's not fair. So we're just going to pay everyone for that. What do we get? We get more inflation.
0: So Jeff, again, with the idea of maybe taking the middle path here, because it's perhaps where the best balance is, I don't want to come across as being sort of an an Occupy Wall Street type. You know, I hold securities as investment. I have a home. I, I am one of these privileged folks who probably ultimately does benefit from this dysfunctional system. I just want to be really clear about that and and at least demonstrate some level of insight, although it's probably not even enough insight uh, if if you go further and far enough down that rabbit hole, but probably not going to work to blow up our financial system, right? It's probably not going to work to stay with the status quo either. So we have to find middle of the road, centrist solutions that are going to you know, turn the Titanic around and getting it going in the right direction. Jeff, before we get to talking about cryptocurrency and and maybe how that might be a bit of a solution to some of the problems that we're talking about, is there anything else that you want to say around the damaging impacts of inflation that we haven't met so far and really the inflation is a function of just printing money to try and get out of problems?
1: That's a loaded question because what I want to say is, well, it's, self evident what the problems are but we're so conditioned to believe that inflation is natural that prices just go up over time you know my my grandfather bought his house for $20,000 in 1955 and prices just go up it's the way it is we've been conditioned to think that way in part because our system depends on inflation so as far as Is there anything else I would add about the damaging effects? I mean, I I think we just have to really think about, is that fair? Is that the system that we want to live in where the government can simply print more money, which dilutes the value of the money that one holds and has worked hard for in a manner that unfairly disadvantages those folks who are already disadvantaged, in part because they don't hold assets. A, do we want that? And even if we want that, what the heck are going to be the negative consequences as far as division and conflict that come from that? Because it's coming. It's going to have to come. They're already talking about more taxes on real estate, for example, or should we change the capital gains tax? And perhaps we should, but again, naive to think that a government-caused problem, manipulation of the currency, and thus inflation, is going to be smoothly solved by a government solution. That, that's just one person's opinion, and again, I hope that doesn't come across as right-wing because I'm, I'm a. I'm a centrist. I'm just trying to say, what what's fair? What's the type of society we want to live in? And, and one that's increasingly inflation-ridden, that arbitrarily selects winners and losers. I don't think that's the type of society I want to live in.
0: I think it's a really important question to ask Jeff. I don't think it's a right or left issue. I think it's just a human issue with respect to the way that we have set up our society. And it's an unintended consequence, I hope. At best, (laughs) it could be worse. But anyway, I'll I'll leave it there. Okay, so I think we've sketched out the problem from an inflation printing money perspective and all the problems that that could have. I want to migrate us over now to talking about cryptocurrency. Jeff, could you perhaps give a Cole's Notes version of what cryptocurrency is? And feel free to reference Bitcoin. Most people are going to at least have some situational awareness of that. But please, I'd love to have a little bit of an explanation for the audience around what cryptocurrency is. You know where did it come from? How does it work? Uh, and then we'll get to the point of addressing how it could address inequalities.
1: Sure. So cryptocurrencies are digital currencies that rely on cryptography. So I'll rely heavily or focus heavily on Bitcoin because I would like to distinguish Bitcoin from other cryptocurrencies. I could create a, a cryptocurrency this afternoon. It's a, a digital currency that has value in part because I say it has value and here's the code of it. Bitcoin, yes, is a digital form of money that was software coded by a human being or a group of human beings. Yes, it is computer code. But what is important is the properties of that code. So let me take a step back. Cryptocurrencies are effectively digital currencies that rely on cryptography. There's a lot more to it in terms of the the notion of blockchain, how the blockchain functions, the, the security of the blockchain, and how transactions are processed in a cryptocurrency. But let me bring it back to Bitcoin. So we talked earlier about the characteristics of good or sound money. It's scarce. It's stable. It's portable, and it's durable. Bitcoin was developed with these characteristics in mind. So as strange as this sounds, Bitcoin was developed and coded by an anonymous individual or group of individuals in the, the mid to late um, to the period of around 2007 to 2009. This currency was encoded in such a way that its creator or creators have remained anonymous. They have long since vanished. And that sounds strange, but it's irrelevant because the code is the code. It is independent. Anyone can see the code. The code is tried, tested, and true through virtually countless transactions. The code works and the code is what it is. It's not controlled by an individual, an entity, or an organization. Bitcoin is not a company, it is an entity unto itself. And so, thinking back to those characteristics of sound money, perhaps most important as we talk about inflation, is the supply of Bitcoin is capped at 21 million Bitcoins. There's nothing magical about the number 21 million. What is important is that the supply is capped. It cannot be increased beyond 21 million. And hopefully, folks who aren't familiar with the idea of inflation and manipulation of currency have a sense of why that's important from this conversation so far. So here is a form of money, first and foremost, that cannot be manipulated. It is not controlled by an individual and its supply is capped and it's transparent. You can see the code. You can see... The transactions on the blockchain as they happen
0: perfect that's a great explanation Jeff if you're comfortable speaking to it could you maybe explain where bitcoins come from right so there's not 21 million bitcoins in quote-unquote circulation at the moment I, I, I forget what how many are out there at the moment but can you maybe describe how bitcoins are coming to come into being come into existence
1: yeah so bitcoins come into existence through the the nodes that validate and process Bitcoin transactions. So here's a network and we need to find entities to power that network. So why would an entity opt into this network? Well, they opt into this network because they're rewarded in Bitcoin. So it used to be what in the the early days of Bitcoin that, yeah, folks with a computer server in their basement could serve as these nodes that validated. The Bitcoin transactions, and they were rewarded in Bitcoins. It's gotten to the point now where the reward in the amount of Bitcoin is purposely decreasing with time. And the computer power required to validate these transactions is so great that now there are massive companies with warehouses full of servers that validate these transactions. And what they're doing is In the code of Bitcoin, each transaction has to be validated through the solving of a very complex mathematical problem that takes many, 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 many iterations and a lot of computer power to solve. Hence, these warehouses full of servers. These servers are then rewarded in Bitcoin as the value of Bitcoin has increased. That has become an increasingly lucrative proposition for the folks serving as those nodes. I think that that's how the the new the new coins come into existence is exactly through that process. The servers are rewarded rewarded with the new coins. It's something around eighteen plus million coins are are in existence, and over the next one hundred plus years, if you can believe it or not, the full twenty one million supply of bitcoins will be reached gradually through rewards to these nodes as they process the transactions, after which point the rewards will come from transaction fees.
0: Jeff, that's a really great explanation, I think, about as simple as it as it can get, uh, given how complex this process really is. Okay, so we've laid out enough of an explanation around Bitcoin to understand perhaps the advantages it may hold relative to some of the problems that we've talked about. So, Jeff, did you want to speak to how you think a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin could potentially be a little bit of a life raft out of the situation that we are in at this particular time, or we could find ourselves in even further as time goes on?
1: Yes. So we start with the the idea that we have this inflatable supply of money that is causing societal strife, which I think has become self-evident. So what's the alternative? Well, okay. Do we have an alternative that is not inflatable, that's not manipulatable. Yes, it's called Bitcoin. Okay. What do we do next? And that is the the big unknown. We don't know what that transition from a fiat dollar system to Bitcoin could look like. Many would argue that that it's already happening. But the question of how does this ameliorate the ills associated with inequity and and inflation is, let's just start with the idea that you have more trust in the money that you are being given in exchange for your time, your labor, and your resources. If that's the case, then that in and of itself presumably buttresses against inflation-driven spending. So this money is going to hold its value okay, like maybe I don't make that speculative real estate investment that's going to push up the price of real estate for everyone else. Maybe I hold that and create something of greater long-term value. And for the folks who don't hold assets, they're then incentivized to save because their savings, not only will the prices presumably hold steady, but their savings will gain in value over time because the the supply of money is not being diluted so it then we then come back to a paradigm where it makes sense to save money a savings account bonds these things all make sense prices are stable i can budget i trust in the money that i'm being given so even though i may not be making a lot i can save i can have faith that prices will remain stable and my money is going to grow, and I can build for the future, and presumably leave the next generation better off. So I know a lot of that sounds uh, very aspirational. The path to getting there is unclear. There are a lot of folks out there, and you know, put together a much more eloquent argument and picture of how that transition would happen. I tend to think they fall in a couple of categories of you know, the hyper educated um, and well meaning versus the um, hype pumpers, but all that to say, it's like, guys, we got it. We got to look at solutions. Right. And I, again, I hope that we've at least started to pique your interest. If you're not familiar with inflation, monetary policy, Bitcoin, at least we've piqued your interest. So, okay. Like maybe the system is not exactly working the way we want it to. And we don't know what the end game is we don't know what's gonna be a more equitable inflation resistant solution, but hey, like there's this thing called Bitcoin, and you know, maybe there's there's something to it. So I think I'd be be disingenuous if I put more fine a point on it than that, other than hey, this this thing is it seems promising, it's interesting, we know change is coming, we know this system ain't exactly working the way we want it to and you know let's let's look into this alternative form of money this alternative form of exchanging value
0: no jeff i really appreciate you retaining the nuance around that and really building in all the uncertainty that is there because i think even the wisest minds that i've heard speak to this are are really speaking about it in sort of you know 20 30 year time arcs in, in terms of some of the things that they're prognosticating around coming true nobody and and you know and nobody really knows there's always the impact of further natural disasters pandemics wars something could come along that could completely derail this process in in ways we can't even imagine so again I think it's just important as you point out just to start asking the questions to be honest about the impact of what's going on right now and then start asking questions hey what are, what are the alternatives I don't think there's any harm in that as long as, again, we're intellectually honest and rigorous about the uncertainty, unintended consequences, not knowing what we don't know, all that kind of good stuff that we would endeavor as part of critical thinking. Jeff, just as a quick question for you here, because we've talked about how Bitcoin is insulated to some extent against inflation. Why is it the case that Bitcoin, uh, one Bitcoin was worth around $900 back in 2016, and we've seen prices well over $65,000 US for a, a coin? If people are hearing us say that it's not prone to inflation, why is the value of a Bitcoin rising so precipitously and all over the map, really, if, if you look at the uh, the, the valuation?
1: Right. And, and an important point there that the currency is inflating in value, right? In, in contrast to your Canadian or US dollars, which are de- themselves deflating in their value against the things you want to buy with them. So if you've owned dollars, your purchasing power has gone down. If you've owned Bitcoin or real estate or stocks, your purchasing power has generally gone up. And in the case of Bitcoin, up exponentially. That again, I'm not saying that's to continue, nobody knows, but that is what has happened in recent years. So why is that the case with Bitcoin? The it's a, It's a supply and demand situation. So as folks have become disenchanted with fiat dollars, they've seen the potential of Bitcoin. They've moved portions of their wealth into Bitcoin. You have large entities, companies, family offices of wealthy individuals, a billion dollar plus net worth and say, okay, well, let's put 1% of our net worth into Bitcoin. Same thing with companies. And so that demand for Bitcoin has helped appreciate the price of one Bitcoin in the same way you would see with a stock that is in demand. So what is less clear is when does that fluctuation and volatility in the price of Bitcoin, when does that subside? Because that will be important for Bitcoin as a currency if it is to be used as a currency. When does that and how does that subside? And I don't think anyone knows what proponents of Bitcoin are saying is we're just at the beginning right now of entities, individuals, companies, governments putting their money into Bitcoin. And I I made a good point here to add this idea of a digital cryptocurrency sounds very strange. Governments are already looking at digital currencies. So the, the idea of a central bank digital currency is has been around for a while now. And eventually the Canadian government is going to introduce a digital currency. The euro, the US dollar will all have digital versions of themselves. So this idea of a digital currency is, is only going to gain traction
0: that's perfect, Jeff. I just wanted people to understand why it is that the price of Bitcoin is going up and it's this is not the same thing as inflation in the way that we are talking about it because I understand it could be confusing for sure. I think it's also worth pointing out too that the price of one Bitcoin doesn't really matter ultimately because Bitcoin is divisible into smaller and smaller, smaller units. So if you go to buy a cup of coffee, it might ultimately be like 0. 0.00084 Bitcoins. Right. So the ultimate value of one unit doesn't really matter. The market will ultimately, you know, determine where that shakes out. It's probably it feels a bit bubbly at at the moment. But again, who knows? But it doesn't really matter for the end user at the end of the day when it stabilizes, essentially.
1: Yep, And arguably the volatility in the price of Bitcoin doesn't matter. It relative to the volatility in your Canadian or U.S. dollar right now, because Surprised that this point is coming towards the end of our conversation, but very important to note that the supply of US and Canadian dollars has increased by approximately 20 plus percent since the onset of COVID. So think about that. Theoretically, your $1 is worth 20% less, there's 20% more of them through quote unquote government printing. And we shouldn't be surprised when we see the price of the things that we want to buy go up. I like to think, it's not a perfect analogy, but I like to think of if you had monopoly dollars and you had five children in front of you and you had an ice cream cone, and let's assume they all really wanted that ice cream cone. And let's assume that none of these um, children are savers and that they know that the monopoly money is all going to be taken back at the end of the day. What if you gave them all $10? How much do you think they're all going to be willing to spend on the ice cream cone? Probably $10. What if you, you printed more Monopoly money and you gave them each $100? What's the price of the ice cream going to be? It's probably going to be $100. And a similar process is taking place when you see the price of food, gas, et cetera. We've printed all this additional money, approximately 20% we shouldn't be surprised that the cost of goods has gone up arguably by 10, 15, 20%. The government statistics indicate that inflation officially is somewhere in that 4 to 6% range, depending on Canada versus the US. That is almost certainly an underestimation of, of the amount of inflation. And it really is 10, 15, 20%. And I think most folks who are out buying things on a day-to-day basis.
0: If you're a car dealership right now, you know there's 20% more money circulating in society to pay for that car. Yep. And there's 20% less cars. I'm making that, there's probably way less than that, but anyone who's tried to buy a car recently knows there's just not that many. It's a perfect storm, right? You've got these supply chain disruptions, a lot more money out there. Oh man, this this could get very very interesting. So Jeff, I'm just keeping an eye on the time here and want to respect the time frame that we had established between us Jeff, I really want to thank you for the conversation today. I really appreciate the intellectual curiosity, the nuance that you've brought to the conversation. Has been, I've I've learned a lot. It's been really, really interesting. I hope this has piqued. I, I think our goal here today was to pique people's interest rather than, you know, provide ultimate answers around anything. So I really hope that people have taken something away from today, and it's going to get their critical thinking machine going, and they will go look into these concepts for themselves.
1: Yeah, I hope so. And again, just want to reiterate, we're coming at this from a bit of an agnostic perspective. I know it probably doesn't necessarily feel like that in, in all of the commentary, but change is happening. We're in unprecedented times. We There's evidence of shifting world orders. We're dealing with increased polarization fueled by social media. And the question is, what is the implication for us as clinicians and as human beings, what is the, the implication of the monetary spending that's that's taking place or the monetary printing that's that's taking place in society? And and hopefully that's showing through. It's just like, okay, so there's gotta be an implication. And I think you're on the wrong side of the fence if you think there's not, and if you well, you know, we've come through hard times before and we'll just get right back to normal. It's like, well, maybe, but I want to assume that there's gonna be change and I want to explore what that change is going to be, what that means for me and what that means for my client. So again, hopefully that is shone through in the conversation.
0: I really hope so too. And again, it's really just applying the same strategy that we would use with an individual client, right? To acknowledge what's really going on and then get into creative problem solving mode to liberate as much flexibility as possible, possible around thinking through these ideas and seeing what comes up. Jeff, if people are interested in learning more about you, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn,
1: uh, Twitter as well, but uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. And uh, yeah, from there, you can uh, connect and uh, send a message feedback uh, if if you feel the, the urge.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks again so much, Jeff. I look forward to having a fourth conversation at some point in the future. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure
0: as always. Okay. Take good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.